Hello and welcome to this edition of the Blackwell Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest this week is novelist and historian Rebecca Stott. Rebecca is the author of the novels The Coral Thief and Ghost Walk, and non-fiction books including Darwin and the Barnacle, about the great naturalist's fascination with the tiny sea creatures. Her interest in things Darwinian continues in her new book, Darwin's Ghosts, which investigates the life and work of some of the shadowy figures behind Darwin, his predecessors, the less well-known rebels. The story of the discovery of natural selection, she writes, is a story of meanderings and false starts, of outgrowths, adaptations and atrophies, of movements backwards as well as forwards, of sudden jumps and accelerations and convergences. Writing in the Telegraph, Gillian Beer justly called the book extraordinarily wide-ranging and engaging, extending as it does from Aristotle, by way of an Islamic scholar, a Renaissance potter, and a host of Enlightenment thinkers, to Darwin's own grandfather, Erasmus, and Darwin's contemporary, and the man who came close to pipping him to the post, Alfred Russell Wallace. Without in any way diminishing Darwin's achievement, Stott shows that others before him had asked similar questions, and taken similar steps, however faltering, along the same road of intellectual inquiry. When we met in Cambridge recently, I began by asking Rebecca to set the scene. What state of mind was Darwin in at Christmas 1859, shortly after the publication of The Origin of Species? He was anxious. The book Origin of Species had just come out. He was bracing himself against public reaction and the reaction of his peers. And uh, he was at home, we know, uh, that Christmas. He'd just come back from a hydropathic establishment where he'd been going through the water cure for his various ailments and feeling better. Then out of the blue, a letter arrived that was not really about the heretical ideas of his book, but was about the fact that he had failed to acknowledge his ancestors in the book. And for Darwin, that was an acute embarrassment, and it unsettled him. He knew that it was protocol, really. It was good manners in books of the kind that he had just written to begin by saying, these are the people who've been before me. These are the people who have come close to these ideas before. And the fact that he hadn't done it was because he had been rushed to print. So he began that Christmas to start to wonder about who those ancestors were and then to start to draw up a list so that he could put that embarrassment right, he could correct it. And uh, it took him a very long time. Uh, So the anxiety increased. Uh, It started with embarrassment. And then during that Christmas and into the spring, as it was very wild winter, it was very um, windy and uh, there were thick snows. Um, So during that time, he started to try to work out who his predecessors were. And the harder he looked, the more difficult the task became. So that he began to be, and it's really clear to me reading his letters, he began to be haunted by them, which is why I called the book Darwin's Ghosts, because this is about a haunting. This is about a man who needed to know who his ancestors were, felt their presence behind him, as it were, in everything that he did needed to find them and failed to find them because he was not a scholar of history and because there just wasn't very much information. So my task in this book was to try to go back into the past on Darwin's behalf and to try to find out who those ghosts were, who those people really were, and to put them into their worlds. There's something rather endearingly groping, I thought, about his own attempts 
to establish this list, isn't there? Because he's relying on, on other people's advice and some of the advice is good and some of it is, is rather faulty. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think if you read between the lines, and I, I've worked on Darwin for a long time now, and I have a, sen- a very strong sense of him from his letters, and you can feel where he's fretting, you know, um, because he, he was a very kind and good man, I think, in all sorts of ways, but he did get fretful about things. And I think in the fact that he was forgetting all the time, he kept misspelling their names or writing to someone, who is that American who published Ideas on Evolution? I can't remember his name now. So every five minutes he seemed to be forgetting. It was as if their names were slipping through his fingers. And I think that, well, that seems to me that that was a sign of uh, heightened anxiety. Now, as you say, Darwin hadn't really established this sense of the history of, of his idea before he wrote The Origin. So what made you think that there was something coherent as a, as a story which you could tell in, in a book? I knew that he, that there were ancestors. I knew that there were forerunners. I'd read about them. And it was a complicated story. There are books that are in print about Darwin's predecessors, his forerunners, tell a story of enormous intellectual complexity. And as I began to look, and as I began to look at the people on his list, and the people mentioned in these academic books, and in articles and so on, I began to see that nobody was really acknowledging them as human beings. I wanted to find out their stories as human beings, and I felt that if I was going back on Darwin's behalf, that's what he'd want to know too, and I wanted to know whether he had anything in common with them, what kinds of risks they may have taken. It seemed to me that Darwin knew he was taking enormous risks with his own reputation and with his family and their reputation. So I wanted to know whether that story was repeated back in time and whether it was more dangerous in the past to have played with those ideas or less dangerous. And the further I looked, the the further and further I had to go back. And I realized, of course, that the first person on Darwin's list was Aristotle. And that's 350 BC. And Darwin was, of course, misadvised in thinking that Aristotle was an evolutionist. When you look closely, there are perhaps elements of evolutionary questions in Aristotle's work, but certainly not evolutionary conclusions. But I had to start there because that's where Darwin started. He put Aristotle at the top of his list. So that meant I had to start in 350 BC on the island of Lesbos in the Aegean Sea. And I would have thought that would be quite a tough one to start with in terms of bringing alive the context. But I thought you, I was amazed by how vivid you were able to render it. I mean, so how much material is there to draw on and how much do you have to be filling in the blanks and, and doing a sort of reconstruction job yourself? Yeah, it was, a, it was a kind of reconstruction job of the kind that I do as a historical novelist as well. It's really important to know the details of everyday life. So if you're going to go to, th- to Lesbos in 350 BC, where were the roads? What did the, the, the beach look like? Uh, where were the settlements? How did the fishermen empty their nets? How did they place their nets? What their boats like? All those kinds of things. And so that's how I started really, was to try to reconstruct the place so that I could, that I could describe Aristotle in it, because we know he was there for two years. It's such a fascinating process because it means you're reading things about ancient Greek fishing practices or sponge diving. (laughs) Sponge diving, yes. And then there's a tremendous amount of knowledge that is there, but in obscure pockets. And you really have to go to specialists and you have to go to people who know something about ancient Greek fishing practices or extinct fish that uh, we know about that were present in the Aegean at that time. 
So I spent a lot of time pulling those tiny things together and doing detective work. That's what it is, really. It's sort of forensic detective work. Because if you ask yourself that question, what was it like to live and work this piece of land in 350 BC as someone who was of a kind of superior class, who perhaps didn't speak the local dialect or even the local language, what would your day-to-day life be like? And actually answering that question is incredibly hard. But I just kept going in that way that you do when you become incredibly curious about something. And also I was helped by some of the finest scholars about ancient Greek history and Aristotle that you could want for because so many of them are in Cambridge. So they were very generous with their time. So I take them my material and say, does this ring true to you? And they'd say, oh, you know, you need to go and talk to so-and-so about sponge diving or whatever. So bit by bit it came, but it, that was the longest chapter. I suppose Aristotle then is established as the first in this lineage of thinkers who are interested both in the very big questions, the big explanatory questions, but also in the minutiae of actually getting down in the rock pools or the, in the fossils and examining the tiny details and then trying to reconcile what they see with what they think about the big questions. Mm. They were working, absolutely, that's so right. Um, They were working on two levels. There's a a very interesting letter that Darwin wrote in which he said he was struggling with headaches when he was working on the barnacles. And he said these minute variations between species, he said, uh, because he was drawing the differences between one valve and another, tiny, tiny, minute differences. Uh, These minute differences, he said, are a headache to me, both as a systematist and as a speculist. And that difference, you know, between the man who is recording the detail and the man, the speculist, who is thinking about the big picture, they're moving between the minutiae and 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 the big picture all the time. And that's exactly what Aristotle was doing. And you can see it with his work that there's the man who's doing the recording, the really, really detailed recording. And there's the man who's saying, what does this mean? And how does it add up? How did this happen? How did they come to be? And trying to come to conclusions about the keys to nature's processes. And also, it's a, it's a story about the discovery of the complexity and the variety of life, isn't it? And in the context of that, I love the image that the Arabic scholar Al-Jahi came up with of the bonfire at night and the insects being drawn to it and the sort of richness of life which exceeds previous human understanding. And that, that again seemed to me to be a to be a theme running through this book. Mm, yeah, a theme. I mean, w- one of the themes is about curiosity and how far people will go to know or to try to understand nature's laws. Um, and and Jahith was relentless in that experiment. He repeated it as far as we can tell. And again, we're guessing between the lines. You know, these early chapters where where I was dealing with some of my very earliest people. There's so much missing information that you can just, you know, you just do your best to fill it in. But we know from the work that he repeated this experiment over and over, lit a fire on the edge of a beach, at the top of a mountain, by a river, in a wood, and recorded with his people the number of species that came close to it in the course of a single night. And it was almost always, apparently, around about 70, 75 creatures. And that would be a mixture of insects, mammals, birds, and so on. But always a different combination. And it was that that he saw as the great web of being, which for him as a Muslim was affirmation of the beneficence of of his God. Um, that that these extraordinary webs existed of codependence, of one 
insect being preyed upon by a bird and so on, that these food chains were everywhere around him, but in different combinations. So what he was recording was diversity of species, but also to some extent natural selection. When we get to the 18th century, then there is a sense of knowledge being transmitted between thinkers and a sort of economy of ideas beginning to be set up, however dangerous the context in, in, in which it was um, practised. Yeah, by the 18th century, uh, I mean, just the arrangement of chapters became more and more complicated because I was no, no longer writing about isolated individuals, but communities, people in correspondence with each other, often living on the outskirts of a society or in its underground, if you like, because they were asking questions that were heretical and regarded certainly by 18th century France as being not just heretical but subversive, a threat to the state, a threat to um, the church particularly. So those people were often under surveillance in communication with each other, passing books to each other clandestinely. So the web that um, you know I was talking about earlier becomes extended. You get this sense of a community of people engaged in a collective endeavour, but still remarkable individuals in it, people like Diderot, who were, yeah, very much part of an avant-garde intellectual community and under surveillance, in and out of prison, because he was writing such dangerous things. So very much part of a community, but at the same time, a remarkable individual who was off on his own, you know, off in a league of his own. He was thinking thoughts that nobody has really come up with since. Um, reading across so many different what we would call discipline boundaries but for him they were all part of a continuum you know he he was interested in natural history he was interested in theology he was interested in philosophy and all of those things came together in a collective way um so yeah communities but remarkable individuals and i think my book is is very much about trying to find my way through that sense of um remarkable individuals working together, but also working in isolation, often in isolation. Yeah, Diderot was the first thinker, I think, where you quoted a passage and I thought, that really sounds like yeah. evolution, yeah. avant la lettre. Mm. Is that the way that, that you encountered? I was really struck by that. Because uh, yes. it seemed that previous thinkers were, were travelling in the right direction, but he really had crystallised something. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Diderot for me was the chapter I least wanted to leave. You know, this was a world that I found utterly beguiling and in a, you know relatively unfamiliar one um, insofar as I knew something about 18th century pre-revolutionary France and of the communities of atheists and other uh, avant-garde thinkers in that in that period but um, you know it was so much of it surprised me he surprised me enormously and the just the audacity of his ideas and the range of them and the and the the sense that he had that is communicated in his project of the encyclopedia that he really could connect everything together he believed that, that all knowledge was kind of mapped in branches and that one thing was connected to another connected to another and that you really could if you worked enough hours and this is a man who barely slept you know he was so determined to understand things and to to bring all of that knowledge to the people and that that project uh, is an astonishing one and to to therefore see, I mean, it made sense to me that of all the people I was working on not only was he the most audacious thinker the most 
atheist and un unapologetically atheist um, thinker, but that also his sense of the connectedness of all species and of its continual transformation through time uh, and of the fluidity of of species one into another into another was of a piece with his sense of what knowledge was too that it was all connected up it was all a web it was all branching patterns and that you couldn't take one piece out of it that it that, that it was all connected up together a brilliant brilliant thinker and, and as well as being a brilliant thinker, perhaps one of the, the, the greatest stylists that you, you quote in the book. Although it was, it's interesting, as you say, these thinkers had to be very careful. They had to couch things in in rhetorical questions or in, in tentative terms, simply because of the danger of expressing ideas like these openly. Yeah. And again, that, that's one of the important things I think that I discovered in this book, that we're not talking about scientists here. We're talking about people who are poets, philosophers. Yes, the concept of the scientist emerges in the 19th century, but these people were thinkers, they were intellectuals, they were savants, you know, that's a lovely French word. The fact that people like Diderot had to find clever ways of avoiding saying things straight, because saying things straight would land you in prison, meant that he experimented with all sorts of rhetorical acrobatics, which produced brilliant writing and, and made him, I think, drawn over and over to theatrical dramatic devices. So he would put various voices into dialogue and have uh, made up characters speculate on evolutionary ideas. And then of course he could say, but that wasn't me, that was my character in my play. So who, Rebecca, do you think came closest to Darwin? And we should perhaps exclude Wallace from this competition because they sort of reached this finishing line almost at the same time. But bef before that era, who do you think was actually closest to, to clinching it? Wallace is obviously the, the, the person who comes closest, but Lamarck and the men of the Jardin de Plantes, I think, who for me are a rather remarkable bunch of individuals because they were working in a time and a place that was unique in the history of this story, insofar as when the French Revolution happened, the priests were banished from France. And up until that point, the priests had policed the kinds of philosophical questions that could be asked in places where zoology was being studied. So suddenly there's a 20 year, 15, 20 year gap in the Jardin de Plante, which was a, a place of study and research in zoology, biology and botany, suddenly any question could be asked. Not only that, but there were resources there. Napoleon had been making his way across Europe, bringing back these extraordinary natural history collections to Paris. It was the greatest depository of natural history specimens in the world ever. So these people were given permission really to ask any question in any way and they had the resources to follow those questions up. They also had students who were coming in from all over Europe, uh, young medical students who were also heady with the freedom that they could really pursue any kinds of questions. So in that 15, 20 year period, we see an acceleration in evolutionary ideas that's unprecedented really until Darwin. And that seems to me to be a kind of mighty thing, you know, that it was, I, I'm quite sure it was the fact that those people were working in an entirely pretty much entirely secular environment. In England at the same time we had we had Lyle didn't we he was sort of standing at the channel almost mm -hmm. sort of re rebutting these ideas coming from France. Yes 
yes. And re- rebutting, so people like Lyle were rebutting the ideas coming from France. I think not only because they saw the ideas, I mean, the British scientists tended to cast themselves as being empirical, fact-driven, unswayed by big, crazy ideas, you know, big philosophical systems of various kinds. We do facts, but they would say. So Lyle's opposition to French ideas was partly that he saw himself as an empiricist and them as the great speculators and playing with castles in the air and so on. But also because those ideas over there across the channel were French. And French, everything French was dangerous. It was associated with the French Revolution. It was associated with anti-clericalism. It was associated with movements, you know, away from hierarchies. And so, of course, the British were going to oppose early evolutionary ideas because they were bound up with politics and they were bound up with an egalitarianism that, uh, to British scientists at that time, was anathema. Rebecca, in in conclusion, I mean, it seemed to me that your book in no way diminished Darwin's achievement, but what it did was it raised up some of his his forebears and really told a very interesting story about the the spirit of human inquiry and and human human bravery. Yes. I I like to think, or I like, (laughs) when I got to the end of the book, I spent a bit of time thinking about what Darwin would have made of the work that I had done. Not, you know, not my work, but of the the discoveries that I'd made about these individuals, about the people. What would he have made of the people? And I was quite sure, it seems to me to be clear, that he would have recognised them as kin. You know, there, there are so many characteristics that he has in common with them. You know, he was also a maverick. He was also a polymath. He also had a long sea journey. Uh, he was in contact with lots of people and lots of new ideas. He was constantly asking questions. What he had that was different from them, I think, was uh, the freedom to pursue his own line of inquiry because he was rich. Many of these earlier people were not rich. They were just as curious as he was, just as clever, perhaps. But they had to work against the sound of a thundering printing press or they had to work to placate their patrons or they had to collect beetles as Wallace did. You know, So he really was very lucky, also remarkable. Of course, he's the one who pulled it all together in the end and came up with natural selection. But so many of these earlier thinkers, I know that he would have recognised as kin because they were like him. Rebecca Stott. Darwin's Ghosts is available now in hardback. You'll find it, plus all of Rebecca's other books and several million other titles besides, at blackwell.co.uk. On the Blackwell site, you'll also find a podcast archive with over 150 author interviews by clicking on the podcast tab on the home page. You can also make sure you never miss another programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. Just type Blackwell in the podcast category and a free subscription is a couple of clicks away. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Online Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.